From the Inspiration offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. This is Andrew Leadham. Today, we're going to be talking to Jacob Krosgaard, who is the CEO of Everfuel from Copenhagen, Denmark. And in the studio today, I've got Patrick Malloy, as always. Patrick, how are we doing? Hey, Andrew, how are you? Living the dream, man, living the dream. And I've got Chris Jackson on the line from London. Chris, how are you? Hey, hey Andrew, good to hear from you. How's Megxit going, by the way? I just learned about that, uh, <laughs> I just learned about that one yesterday. <laughs> uh, honestly, man, I have no idea. Good, good, I mean, that's how it should be. No he's idea. lying. That's how, <laughs> yeah, I know, I know he's lying. So, Patrick... How was your weekend? What have you been up to? How was my weekend? Uh, great. Yeah. I, you look so surprised that someone's asked how your life's going. Yeah, yeah. No. Generally, when I come into our wonderful podcast studio, it's the last thing that I expect to be asked of it. I'm just, oh, hey, just this is terrified. A, we are a personable um, group of people here. I'm, wor- I'm worried about you, Patrick. You look a little geez. frazzled. Um, very good. Uh, nice to be back, fresh into 2020. Yeah. What excellent. about you guys? Oh. Pretty good, man. Yeah, now that you're back in the U.S., everything's going a lot better. But we've only got a few minutes before we have to get Jacob on the line. Very quickly, Patrick, what what are you most interested to hear about from Everfuel's perspective? I guess... The development and rollout of uh, fueling solutions or, or you know, hydrogen-based fueling solutions in Europe is uh, is going to be very, very interesting. And in part because, you know, you obviously have some national initiatives that are, are kind of kicking in, but also, you know, European Union-wide kind of joint undertakings and efforts to kind of integrate these various uh, approaches. It's going to be very, very interesting to see what they kind of trajectory-wise in terms of the development of the markets, uh, view this looking like over the next five, maybe three to five years, let's say. Um, so yeah, it's going to be interesting to get the, the market opinion on it. Very cool. Chris, how about yourself? I think it'd be exciting because Everfuel is a company that um, you know people have been uh, talking about as um, really helping to sort of change the dynamics a lot in Europe. You know, actually a pure play, uh, in many sense, a pure play project developer, so someone who's just going out there to pull all the different components together and focus exclusively on getting the right business cases together to really start to make this whole hydrogen economy transition work. So there's been a lot of positive noise about them. I think they've certainly already helped generate a lot of enthusiasm and uh, can't wait to get Jacob on the phone and uh, talk to him more and, and learn about what they're doing. Excellent. Cool. Well, let's get him on the line. Hello there. Hi, Jacob. This is Andrew Leadham from Everything About Hydrogen. How are you? Just fine, thank you. And you? Great, great. Hi, Jacob. Good to meet you. Hi, it's Chris. How's everything going? Uh, it's extremely busy, but that's uh, <laughs> that's all good. So we'll just jump right in then. And uh, Jacob, if you could give us a little bit of background about yourself uh, and a little bit of background about your role at as CEO at Everfuel and... Uh, some some background about the company itself. That would be great. Yes, absolutely, and, and thank you for having me. So Everfuel, we are a rather new company. Like uh, really, uh, uh, founded here back in uh, 2019 September. Uh, however, we do have a bunch of experience uh, working with uh, working with hydrogen. Uh, myself started all the way back in 2003, where I was a, a co-founder and the CEO of a company called Hydrologic in Denmark. That. Uh, Made a lot of different hydrogen activities, but focused on uh, on hydrogen stations. H2Logic was acquired by uh, by Nell, uh, listed on Oslo Stock Exchange back in 2015. 
And then I used the last uh, four years with them uh, to basically uh, grow the, the business of Hyden Stations, but also to develop what we call sustainable business cases. So developing projects where we could really make Hyden a, uh, a commercial business. And one of the early markets were uh, basically Hyden within the, the heavy duty transportation. And uh, we had some initiatives on fuel cell buses. Uh, long story short, we uh, concluded that the, the most efficient setup would basically be to uh, establish a new company that was Everfuel and do that as a, a spin-off from Nell. So today, Nell is, uh, sorry, Everfuel is an independent company and uh, we're set up with uh, one clear purpose and that is to, uh, uh, to set up an efficient, green, competitive hydrogen value chain and basically sell hydrogen molecules to vehicles competitive with traditional fuels. And where do you guys see the most attractive opportunities in hydrogen mobility in, in the short term, in the immediate term? Basically, hydrogen can, can be used for uh, a variety of, uh, of vehicles, but it's not within all the vehicles where it makes most business-wise sense. So generally, the more heavy-duty your application is, the more uh, obvious hydrogen is uh, compared to, uh, to batteries, at least. So we're talking uh, trains, trucks, buses, but we're also talking normal passenger vehicles when they are used more intensively, like it's the case with, uh, with taxis. So I guess it's a kind of a mixture because the more hydrogen that is consumed, the more feasible the business case uh, becomes. The greatest challenge we see right now is actually that the vehicles are, are not yet uh, ready at uh, the commercial levels that we would like to have them. Uh, and so, Joe, just actually picking up on that a little bit, why do you think that the commercial vehicles, I mean, at least in the European context, it seems, have been kind of lagging? I mean, you know, we have, Ballard have 1,400 fuel cell trucks running in China at the moment. There's a Ford JV with Horizon that has several hundred fuel cell trucks up to 42 tons running at the moment over there. So, so why do you think Europe has been lagging, given that there has been this real push to get hydrogen refueling station deployed in Europe. And obviously yourself and others have been so active in encouraging the commission and industry to get involved in that. Well, I don't think there's a, an, an easy and straight answer. And I cannot talk on, uh, on behalf of the automotive or truck industry in, uh, in Europe, but you are, you're completely spot on. I think they have been sleeping to, to a great extent. I actually also think that the uh, the lobby work made of the uh, of the European automotive industry, where basically the the average uh, reduction in the CO2 emission from the cars has not been ambitious enough, uh, and thereby, uh, as a European car manufacturer, to a great extent, you can actually continue to sell your current vehicles until uh, January 2025. So little of battery, a little of hybrid vehicles would be enough. And from 2025, then you can no longer uh, reach the average emissions without also having batteries and fuel cells uh, as a part of your fleet. On the trucking side, I think I think simply it's, it's the technology that have not been ready for the truck manufacturers, at least not internally, but externally, like uh, you said correctly, like Ballard have been ready and have made projects. Luckily, they are, it seems like they are moving now. And it's not just one or two manufacturers. It's a, it's a big group of, uh, of truck manufacturers that are now starting to move. You know, a lot of this discussion, I think, will probably be around Everfuel's uh, role with uh, hydrogen mobility. Um, but just to clarify as well, uh, is Everfuel also a business that's working in other parts of the hydrogen fuel supply industry? Or is it fairly exclusively focused on the mobility side, just so our listeners can understand a little bit? 
So we are we're clearly focused on the on the mobility side, meaning that we will be operating hydrogen stations, hydrogen distribution, and and depending on, on the country, also hydrogen production through electrolysis. So basically, setting up the complete value chain. Okay, great. So one of the things that we wanted to ask you about, which created a lot of excitement, was uh, the launch of the H2 bus consortium in Europe, of which Everfuel's been a big member. And I think probably the bit that caught uh, the eye of the press was the fact that looking at some of the numbers that you put out for a total cost of ownership for a fuel cell bus versus a diesel bus, you know, the numbers were suggesting that effectively by 2023, you could have systems that are almost at parity with diesel, but 100% zero emission. So what's really changed that's kind of helped that to become the case in your view? And what was it that helped to actually bring that project together? Why why did sort of this H2 bus consortium come together and what was the role of Everfuel in that? Well, the H2 bus consortium is a, is basically a group of like-minded and ambitious hydrogen companies. So uh, I came up with the uh, uh, with the idea in my, uh, I guess, impatience, looking at hydrogen bus activities in Europe and concluded that the technology is actually there. No need to develop new new great stuff, but the prices are way too high. So the quantities of the buses were too low, thereby the buses were too uh, expensive, and the quantity of the fuel was too low, and thereby the fuel was too expensive. So talking with a few of the other players in the industry, asking, so how could we change this? And everybody said, well, we need volume, but we need to do that coordinated, and to, to do that in a number of markets. And then I basically set myself forth together with a, a few others, Solson saying, okay, so how can we actually develop an ambitious target? PM target were 1,000 buses to get an race in Europe by 2023. We put together a, a big project, uh, the first project called H2Bus Europe, which is uh, 600 fuel cell buses, 200 in Denmark, 200 in the UK, and 200 in, in Latvia. Got the support, and now we are, we are at the point where we are very close to, to selling. So basically having, uh, having all partners being jointly ambitious and thereby getting the price of the bus down, the price of the fuel down, the price of the maintenance down to a level where it's roughly at par with, with diesel, diesel hybrids. It's interesting for our listeners who don't know. I mean, so the consortium as it stands today is Everfuel, Wright Bus, Ballard, Hexagon, Nell and Rise. And it's quite an interesting mix. I mean, Everfuel, as you mentioned, sort of has the sort of Danish and I guess Norwegian heritage. Wright Bus is Northern Ireland, Ballard, Canada, Hexagon, Norway, Nell, Norway and Rise from the UK. I can sort of understand why the UK market is, is on your three chosen locations and maybe Denmark as well, given your heritage makes sense. But it's strange to sort of understand why Latvia and in some senses, many listeners may also be surprised why countries like Germany and France weren't included in that. So maybe you can explain a little bit what the thinking was and, and why they didn't come on at this stage for the project. Well, talking specifically regarding Latvia, the, the motivations are different. So firstly, the market that we ended up uh, selecting for, let's say, the, the first uh, application round were basically the markets that were ready. Ready in the uh, in the aspect that we had uh, trying to TTO, so public transport operators, politicians, energy companies, etc., lined up and were ready to execute the project. And when looking at that, at least Latvia and Denmark being smaller countries in uh, in the EU, I think it was simply faster faster align these participants and get the the necessary letters of intent, uh, etc. UK and especially the, the London area with Transport for London have been moving towards zero emission buses for quite some time. So even though UK is, uh, of course, a much bigger market, they were equally ready to uh, to join the project. So not having some of the other larger markets or countries in Europe joining is not 
due to them being excluded, simply due to the uh, the complexity of uh, of getting them to join. However, luckily, we are now doing a, a follow-up project where we do hope that uh, that other markets would join and we see positive trends to work on. Given the kind of, uh, I guess, uh, state kind of sp- or specific market uh, targeted rollout that you've built and, and kind of undertaken, how do efforts and initiatives, you know, for instance, the, the European Commission's joint undertaking on hydrogen and fuel cells, how, how do things like that help you accelerate deployment? Uh, and indeed, you know, are there, are there other kind of examples of this within the, the target markets that you've engaged? Yes. So firstly, FCHDU is extremely important and have helped our industry and will continue to help our industry going forward. Now they will change the name to uh, to Clean Hydrogen. Uh, but basically, they have supported uh, R&D and demonstration and to some extent uh, deployment. As deployment will increase in scale, uh, other uh, programs within the European Union like uh, CEF, Connecting European Facility, will also play a significant role. They are the ones uh, supporting the H2Bus uh, Europe project and, and other hiding projects in Europe. But we also see uh, national initiatives having a stronger and stronger uh, role. That is throughout many of the, of the European markets. Uh, we see a clear tendency within the larger cities that they want zero emission public transportation. And we also see politicians that are basically putting, uh, putting the money where the mouth is and supporting putting up projects. To a great extent, that's supporting better electric buses and better electric bus deployments. But we believe that that will uh, equally, uh, equally be something that uh, can support users. Jacob, can you speak a little bit to the partnership with Nell and how Nell and Everfuel have been working together since uh, the recent spinoff and how that partnership works and where you guys you know, help each other out and what the, what the positives are from that relationship? Yes, absolutely. Uh, of course, I know Nell extremely well, have been a part of the organization for, for 16 years and uh, to a great extent uh, the one behind uh, the activities in Denmark on Heisen stations. I think it's a natural step where Nell basically takes a step back and focuses on being a hardware manufacturer and will perfect that. And then uh, Everfuel is stepping out, becoming a, a, a project concept developer, but also the owner and operator of Nell Equipments. This gives it us and Aerofuel the possibility to put some more harsh targets toward Nell. Say you have to you have to reach these prices, this performance, this, this, and this. That helps Nell to become even better. At the same time, Nell can can use Aerofuel as being potentially uh, first users of, uh, of new technology. Nell has a, a smaller ownership uh, of Aerofuel, and thereby Nell have the uh, the same ambitions to uh, to grow uh, to grow the Aerofuel business. It's however quite important to say that it's not something that limiting uh, the growth of any of the companies. We will be in a competitive situation both ways, and that is important to make sure that none of us will uh, will fall asleep. Within Mill, I was uh, definitely one of the people uh, pushing uh, pushing the business forward, and I'll do that just as much uh, being uh, within there with you. And I, and I think it's exciting, and I think it's really encouraging. To, that, that, I mean that there has been that development in that partnership with Nell. I guess one of the things that I wanted to ask is, in a sense, it seems like Everfuel has been created to solve a sort of market problem, which is that you had a lot of fantastic companies manufacturing really interesting uh, solutions in the hydrogen ecosystem, and maybe not a lot of people working on the project development side to actually help bring those to reality. So I guess in that sense, how has the market responded to having a player like Everfuel come in uh, and sort of take on that more hands-on role. And do you think that that is now 
changing the nature of the conversations that you're having with these governments and with potential partners in Europe now that there is kind of uh, an organization like yourself that is more focused on just the project development aspect rather than the manufacturing pieces? Um, well, firstly, we have been received with very, very open arms, I would say. So both within uh, within the industry, but definitely also uh, within uh, customers of, uh, of heavy-duty vehicles, politicians, etc. They are all uh, heavily supporting the initiatives behind Everview. We have seen a, a, an empty space within the market. Uh, today, there have not been any companies that have taken the complete role to connect the renewable energies with the fueling of hydrogen. And thereby, in, in most projects that I have been directly or indirectly involved with, there have been so many handovers from the ones producing renewable energy to the ones installing electrolyzers to the one distributing the, the hydrogen gas to the one operating the hydrogen stations. And with all of those handovers comes a level of complexity, a level of risk. And when you stack all of that together, that eventually is a cost. And that cost put on the complete hydrogen revenue chain ends up putting the hydrogen molecule at an unattractive price level. So putting it all within basically uh, one balance sheet or within at least something that we are in control of will help reduce all of the, all of the joint risks and thereby we can make the business case work better. This is something that so, many of our customers and partners really understand. So just as you mentioned, Price, I have to, I would be a very good um, host if I didn't ask the question. So what point do you see being the price point that hydrogen at the, as it were, refueling station or at the pump needs to hit in Europe to reach a compelling cost parity? And, it may, and if it's different across, you know, passenger duty and bus and heavy duty, can you kind of maybe give us a little bit of color around how big that variation is? Sure, sure. So when talking about hydrogen for, for heavy duty mobility, the, the target price is around about the five euros per kilogram when hydrogen is to compete with, uh, with diesel. So this is for, for trains, for trucks, for, uh, for buses. When we talk about passenger vehicles, then it has to, and we are competing with, uh, with gasoline at something seven to eight euros per kilogram before VAT. Okay, so in a sense, there's actually an incentive. Weirdly enough, you're focusing on a section of the transport side that, if I understand you correctly, is a little bit harder to achieve, right? I mean, if you're saying it needs to be five euros plus VAT for delivered green hydrogen to be at a compelling price point for diesel and for buses, and for passenger, it's seven to eight euros. You've sort of, as it were, gone after, instead of the low-hanging fruit, the, the much higher hanging and harder fruit. So, I mean, is that simply to do with the fact that you feel it's easier to scale the bus side than it is to convince Europe and convince consumers in Europe to move to passenger vehicles? Or what's underpinning that? Can you maybe add a little bit to that? Well, the, the greatest point, quantity of, uh, of hydrogen consumed. So a typical passenger vehicle used by a private family in Denmark would use uh, 0.5 kilograms per day. Uh, a typical uh, city bus would use 15 to 20 kilograms of hydrogen per day. So if you have a depot with 50 uh, city buses, you're close to 1,000 kilograms of hydrogen. You would need 2,000 per uh, passenger vehicles to hit that same consumption. Next thing are that it's uh, a possibility to sign uh, longer contracts with public transport operators or even with, uh, with truck operators. But if you talk with private individuals, 
they will not sign up to be committed to buy hydrogen for five years from the same hydrogen station. That's not how it normally is. So building issues and basically making the business case bankable is a requirement that you have an off-take agreement. And that is what is possible and what is actually common within many uh, heavy-duty segments. Uh, so even though that uh, the target price might be more harsh, it's more possible to put together a sustainable business case. And just to directly follow on from that, um, you know, in, in the Europe and US, we've seen a lag in, in terms of the, uh, the kind of deployment of fuel cell uh, trucks and heavy-duty uh, trucking. How do you see that changing in, in the next five years? And is, the, is that part of the kind of strategic vision that, that you kind of outlined there in the sense of, you know, trucks and buses being those, those larger consumers and, and, you know, have a, a more traditional kind of commercial style uh, procurement in the fields uh, or in terms of procuring fuels? Yes, I definitely believe that it's going to be the, the heavy duty mobility as well as fleet customers that will uh, basically kickstart the, the hydrogen mobility business. So until today, there has not been set up, at least to my knowledge, any commercial business cases around uh, hydrogen mobility in Europe that is actually giving a return on investment to the, the owner and operator. In order to, to do that, you need to build your electrolyzers of a decent scale. Uh, in looking at our calculations, it's 10 uh, megawatts obliger. That's where you, where you get the, the volumes of scale advantage and you can get your hydrogen to the attractive uh, price points. Then you need to set up a very efficient distribution. Then you need to have your, your high capacity stations. But when you have come across this uh, threshold and you already do have electrolyzers up and going, it's uh, the, the marginal cost of setting up stations that then also support passenger vehicles would be much lower. But getting the market going, you need some heavy-duty customers uh, that can sign up for long-term contracts uh, to make this work. I wanted to shift gears here just a little bit from mobility, uh, Jacob. Could you tell us a little bit, uh, tell our listeners and tell us a little bit about the H2 Res project with uh, Orsted and how that will affect and impact the development of green hydrogen for the European market? So actually here in Denmark, the government has set a very clear focus on, uh, on power to gas. So actually three projects have been uh, supported here in, uh, here in December for a total of uh, 34 uh, megawatts of electrolyzers. And we are involved in, uh, in all three of them. Specifically talking with the H2REST project uh, that we are proud participant of together with Arsenal, it's basically building an, uh, an electrolyzer and connecting that to existing wind power very close to uh, the capital in Copenhagen. Produce hydrogen and use that uh, solely for uh, vehicle fleets in Copenhagen, which would likely be city buses and taxis. So it's a, a very, very interesting project that has potential that can go much beyond uh, the starting point. So, Jacob, a question that I think is quite difficult for people who don't work in sector to understand is the fact that you do need to have multiple different companies quite often coming together in consortiums to make hydrogen projects work. And I think part of that is because in the renewable space, normally people think of solar PV or wind, and you really don't need so many different parties. And obviously, if you're adding more parties, you add to the complexity. So can you maybe describe some of your general thoughts on how you know, Everfuel is going about putting together these consortiums and some of the challenges that are happening with that. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. So we have uh, a, a number of required participants 
to basically make any power to x project work and that makes them much more different from as you said a solar wind park where basically you just install the asset and basically you sell your electricity into the grid and that's to a great extent that power to x projects either you connect them to the grid or you install them behind the meter next to a renewable asset but typically you would need a power company and we do have a lot of the power companies in europe that have grown a lot of interest for, for power to gas projects you typically need uh, hardware suppliers for electrolyzers such as metal you need compressors you need storages you need systems where this can all be uh, operated together. If you need to distribute your gas, you need to trailer filling stations and then trailers to distribute your hydrogen. So there's a bunch of hardware that are slowly getting standardized, but it's not really standardized yet. So just creates a complexity where it's not just a business complexity, but also a technical complexity. And I think this is also where Airview brings a lot of strength. Uh, because we have uh, we have those experiences in in house from day one. I think I've got one more kind of perhaps a, a little general kind of question. You know, we've covered a, a lot of the the, the pretty uh, incredible kind of work that you're undertaking and and the very exciting kind of groups that you're bringing together or you're participating in. I'd ask this as more of a trajectory question for the markets that that you're planning on engaging. What are the the fundamental barriers or the biggest challenges that are still yet to be addressed? What are the things that are, if you cleared the hurdle or if the the hurdle was removed, would massively accelerate these markets? Um, Well, I think that's the the complete right question to really accelerate this. Uh, to talking about uh, talking about Denmark, and this is really where we had uh, industries growing within wind power. So being Vestas and uh, Bonus, that is now Siemens Gamesa Wind Power, they grew a lot because politicians uh, moved the funding from being R&D funding to uh, support deployment. So basically feed-in tariffs and that like. So basically people bought wind power and got the, got the support, because, but they bought the wind power because it was a good business case for them. So making political systems, making support schemes that are not for any specific application, but the general schemes can help move hydrogen uh, much faster. The RED2 initiatives, uh, the Renewable Equipment Directive 2 coming out of the European Union, is an initiative that might help that. So basically uh, support any kilogram of hydrogen produced when it's green. Other blocking mechanisms that are in some markets are the uh, the tariffs of distributing electricity. So if you have a number of wind uh, wind turbines or solar parks, and then the electricity is distributed to the uh, the national-owned uh, transmission grids, and then you connect your electrolyzer to that same uh, transmission or distribution grid, you simply have some high tariffs you have to pay. And in some markets, that is a great hurdle to set up uh, set up the business. Uh, in Denmark, a lot of those hurdles have been removed. But in Germany, as an example, they have what is called the EEG, which is basically making it uh, unattractive to install a, an electrolyzer grid connected in Germany. I just had one final uh, follow-up on that, and I couldn't resist, Jack, because um, you know you did a fantastic sort of outline of some of the issues that are coming up for countries that are trying to promote hydrogen. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, because you mentioned RED2, was additionality. And the reason why I want to mention it is because uh, I was at a department for transport workshop in the UK uh, yesterday and they were talking about additionality and there was a big discussion amongst industry and government around how this idea that you can only qualify hydrogen as 
100% renewable and qualify for a lot of government support for its production is if you are basically putting an electrolyzer behind the meter and you're doing so for a brand new renewable project that didn't exist previously. Uh, and so I kind of just wanted to get some of your thoughts around the challenges of additionality because it is something that affects all European countries and whether you as Everfuel have any ideas on how you know, the EU can work with governments and work with businesses like yourselves to you know, obviously try and encourage more renewables to come onto the grid, but to do so in a way that doesn't hinder the deployment of electrolysis and green hydrogen. Uh, well, I completely agree that it's not an, an easy point, but it's definitely a very important point. If we just uh, take the extreme and say that there should be additionality, meaning that you can, uh, like in the 100% definition, that you can only install electrolyzers behind the meter, then you would almost reach energy, energy anarchy, where each electrolyzer connected to renewables would sub-optimize its own system. And thereby, it would be difficult for the electrical grid to basically predict when would you get surplus electricity from this solar or wind park that also has an electrolyzer connected to it. So when you try to move it into a countrywide or a European-wide perspective, if everything is behind the meter, it's very difficult to control. So from, uh, from my perspective, it should be possible to, uh, to connect electrolyzers to the, the big uh, transmission lines with, uh, of power. And then basically you need mechanisms of why you can clearly document that the electricity I use comes from this specific wind, far, uh, wind park or from this specific new wind park or new solar being installed. Uh, but you need to use the existing grids uh, as they are today. Fantastic, Jacob. Thank you so much. We've, we've kept you longer than we had promised you already, so we really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, it was really wonderful to talk to you, and uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. We hope you'll, you'll come back on uh, in the near future, and we can hear more about the amazing things uh, Everfuel is doing. Anytime. Thank you for having a great show, guys. Yes, thanks very much, Jacob. Thank you very much, okay. Jacob. All right, guys. So what did we think? I thought uh, that was I was great to see Patrick asking the complete right question there towards the end. Well done, Patrick. Thanks. Yeah, pat on the back for you, Patrick, for that one. (laughs) I I pride myself on asking the complete right question whenever possible. Yeah. Yeah, He doesn't he doesn't always jump in people. But when he does, my goodness. What did you guys? What did you guys think uh, about his answers to some of the questions around mobility? I thought the I thought he had some fascinating stuff to say. Yeah, I think the um, particularly the the answer around uh, you know, for instance, bus fleets versus light duty vehicles and concentration and focus around the development of that is um, is something that that rings true from from other work I've seen, folks that I've spoken to in the sector. I think these targeted market developments and almost a, a kind of a a kind of a, a narrow deployment play um, to build the the kind of the case around these things is is you know we're seeing it in California we see it in you know other parts of uh, I think British Columbia similarly they're kind of gradually building out the infrastructure and and building the markets and then interconnecting them with these overarching initiatives seems to be the way that that particular market's going yeah it's 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 encouraging and the the amount of consortia that are uh, that everfuel are involved in and and the the impact those consortia are having um, in accelerating the the rollout is is pretty critical 
you know, this is 2020, folks. This is the decade of deployment. You know, we've gone through targets and publications of, uh, you know, and there's been a lot of noise for a long time now. It's, 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 it seems to be the time that we're going to get stuff actually rolling out. So it's great. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm going to echo some of that. I, I think the biggest takeaway for me, and, and, you know, sort of taking an angle from Patrick, is the fact that what was really concisely demonstrated by Jacob is that basically it's not about the cost, it's about the structuring of the business model in so many ways. I mean, cost is an element, but I think we always overemphasize the cost here. You know, the fact that he's saying what really matters is long term contracts and scaling even if that means you have to hit a more aggressive price point, and even if that means the margins are slightly tighter, that is a more compelling and bankable business case than going after the market that seemingly should be easier to access, right? And, you know, five euros a kilo plus VAT for green hydrogen today is tight. It's doable, but it's tight, Uh, especially, you know, if you're producing on-site, it's one thing. If you're trying to produce remotely in transport, that is a very tough number to hit. Um, you know, so you, it would intuitively to a lot of people seem like that was absolutely crazy to to try and go for that as opposed to the sort of eight, nine euros plus VAT per kilo for the passenger side. Uh, and, you know, very concisely, I think he's answered that. So I think that was important. And I think in many ways that encapsulates why Everfuel is in the market. It exists in companies like themselves and Rise and, you know, hopefully my company Protein are trying to effectively help with the fact that it is often down to the business cases and trying to make something bankable, that seems to be now the single biggest barrier to deployments. And as Patrick says, we are in 2020, this is the decade of deployment. And so building these bankable business cases, bringing together lots of different parties into these projects that are a little bit more complicated than your regular PV and your regular wind is really important. So I I thought it was really useful. Lots learned from that call. Yeah, do we know, guys? Uh, do we know? Does is the H two bus consortium is that like a closed consortium, or is that are they looking to bring in more private sector partners as they expand? I mean, you know, I, I point to Nicola and Iveco. Iveco. How do you pronounce that, by the way? No ideas. <laughs> Which one are we Iveco. going with first? How do I pronounce Iveco? Or if you Iveco. Go, yeah, I have no idea. Well, that's a that sub one. question. I'm going to go with with Iveco, and then we can we can we can and transition on to the other yeah. the other question, which I think may have a more <laughs> substantive answer. Questions. Yeah, yeah, that is one of my highbrow questions. So let's uh, go over to the consortium question. Is that an expanding consortium? Is that a closed group? Do we know anything about that? How's that working? I, my understanding is that it's not a closed group per se. I think there are certain reasons why it would be perhaps unusual to see certain other players coming in. So we didn't actually ask too much, but one of the things that's quite interesting is that you have Rise, which is um, a UK-based hydrogen fuel provided, uh, provision company, and you have Everfuel both in the same consortium. And in some ways, it, it could be seen as somewhat unusual because they should be, or one would imagine they're almost competitive businesses. Um, but they, but you know, it, but they are together. I, I don't know how many others of a similar ilk would come into that kind of consortium. Similarly, you have Right Bus, or I believe it might now be called the Bamford Bus Company, which for people who don't know is actually owned by the same company that Rise is owned by, uh, same gentleman. So that's also quite interesting. I don't know whether you would get other bus companies coming into that consortium, given that Right Bus is there and given that Rise is also there and it's the same ownership. Um, and again, I don't know whether another electrolysis company would go come in, given that Hexagon has a very close relationship with Nell. Nell's already in the consortium, and obviously Everfuel, I think, has uh, exclusively has to use Nell's equipment. Um, 
so yeah, I, I feel like even if it's not formally closed, it seems unlikely that a lot of obvious other partners would come in. Um, I don't know, Patrick. Would you add anything to that? Yeah, I, like I don't, I don't know specifically on on this consortium as to whether it's closed or not. But what I would say is that at this stage, everybody's trying to build a market. So if there's ten actors in a space uh, or in a similar space, building that out and building the critical infrastructure and actually providing a, a, effectively a, a mechanism to grow. Sometimes your competitors are your best friends in, in this sort of engagement, right? So look, it's, it's going to be a you know, strategic play, right? Like it's going to depend on how you foresee the actual development of all these kind of markets and, and indeed how you strategically uh, envision uh, infrastructure being developed, right? So yeah, I, I could see a, a vast kind of a, a array of different approaches to doing this. but A like, vast global consortium? One can only hope someday. Um, no, but Let's start but, with Latvia and build from there. That's generally how I work. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. I'll I'll, I'll, I'll defer to your uh, Latvian expertise. Um, yeah, like it's 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 a little bit of a case of you know, do you start with a hyper competitive engagement in in a very small market at the start, or do you collaborate and and support each other? Uh, in terms of the development of the the fundamentals around uh, what you need, and don't get me wrong, you know, once this matures it just even a little bit, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you know the gloves come off, and it's and it's you know, hell for leather, pure pure competition for for market share. But yeah, this 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 could be a more open. There could be consortia that are more open. Um, it just depends. I think one of the things I wanted to just sort of move across from Andrew a little bit, you know, some of the biggest takeaways for me from this discussion was around why they've chosen the markets they have and also some of the comments around why certain elements in Europe have moved forward and others haven't. So, you know, I thought it was quite interesting the fact that Germany and France isn't really included and Jakob's explanation for why, you know, Latvia, because of their worst alignment from transport operators and politicians, has been able to move a lot faster and why some other big countries have, that we would have expected to be very heavily involved in this type of consortium have, have struggled. Right. And that was going to be my next question is what countries, I mean, you've, you've identified France and Germany, I presume. Those are where you guys would expect, from your standpoint, to have either already seen them be target markets for a consortium like the H2 bus consortium or uh, that you would see as next steps. But based on Jacob's answers, do you think that they are the next step? Where do you guys see it expanding uh, going forward, post-2023 or or just before 2023? I would go a different route on this and say that different countries and different regions and will take different approaches and will develop a, a kind of a, a platform or a plan for engaging these things. And, and that has a bleed over effect, right? So, you know, for instance, if this particular approach is very, very successful, you, you'll see a shift in, you know, French or German policy to enable this in due course, right? You know, we, we talked in the previous episode with, with Alstom rolling out trains, hydrogen trains in Germany, right? That's not really being done anywhere else. Um, it's in part because the conditions are right in that place, and also folks, you know, made a specific decision around policy or procurement, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, yes, some of these markets you'd expect a little bit more activity, but you know, you might get that in a city or a region, uh, and that in turn might inform national policy, and you see the growth, right? But like everybody's learning from everybody here, so I, I think this is. Uh, 
this is a case of just watching what everybody is doing and understanding the, the, the actual operational value of it and finding the best outcomes. As Patrick says, you do need to understand the specifics of the markets. I mean, being very simplistic and maybe being somewhat cynical, if you look at a market like the UK, you have two domestic bus manufacturers with fuel cell experience. Um, it therefore makes some sense to promote, you know, opportunities to develop, you know, markets for them to help to scale so that you can potentially export. And the UK does have some very aggressive ultra low emission zones coming into place. Um, so there's a lot of reasons why it makes some sense to look at it in the UK. In Denmark, you have a huge amount of wind and renewables being generated, and therefore hydrogen is extremely compelling because what you can do with that resource, uh, it's a relatively small country. Jacob's talked about that before. So some of the infrastructure constraints are a little bit smaller there. So again, it's quite interesting. Uh, and Latvia, I mean, there's a range of things, I guess, that come into Latvia, but one of the obvious ones I can think of is something like energy security. You know, for a country that doesn't have extensive oil and gas resources or, or any, to my knowledge, except for what it's able to get from its neighbors or import in, suddenly being able to generate its own fuel domestically in a relatively small geographic country and provide for its own needs is actually something that is is quite valuable. I mean, I believe there's a large um, LNG bunkering um, capability that the Baltic states invested in so that they could reduce their reliance on natural gas from Russia in the last few years. So these sorts of issues that sound almost far-fetched to us actually in certain markets are quite important. So you may well find, as Patrick was alluding to, some markets do trains because that makes sense for them to do trains first and others do buses and some do ferries and some do power to gas into the grid. You know, it will just vary quite a lot. But um, I, ones I like would be the Netherlands, I think is an interesting next one. Um, at Switzerland clearly is already looking at a lot of fuel cell trucks, so that would make some sense. Um, and I don't see any reason why in Norway or in Sweden you wouldn't start to see some of these things potentially rolling out as well. Well, I think, guys, based on time, we probably need to get out of here. I know Patrick's got a big call to jump on. That does it for us here today at Everything About Hydrogen. I'd like to thank Patrick and Chris for joining us. Patrick has already jumped out of the room. Chris, thank you so much for calling in from London, as always. Always a pleasure. And a big thank you to Jacob Crosgard, CEO of Everfuel. We hope he'll come back and join us again soon. And as always, a huge thank you to our listeners. And if you've enjoyed the show, please do give us a five-star rating wherever you find your podcast content. And we hope you'll come back and join us soon. 